We're continuing our study, of course, in the, the book of Genesis and continuing with the life of Jacob. And in this chapter 31, we see a major challenge and a major turning point in the life of Jacob. You remember maybe who Jacob was, and he, he is the dirty, sneaky thief, the, the heel snatcher, the supplanter. We've, we've likened him to a, a con man, right? And that is, that's who Jacob is, and that's who his uncle Laban is. So these two guys, con men, are going at it for many years, trying to outsmart each other, outwit each other in various ways. And, and so this is much of the story of what's been taking place. Jacob, along the way, is constantly allowing compromise in his life. And God was constantly challenging him to eliminate that compromise, to deal with his garbage, right? That's, I mean, that's what God does. We, we deal with compromise, and he says, stop and deal with your garbage, right? Look to Jesus, run to Jesus, leave the, the, the mess behind. And here, uh, we're gonna see this major turning point in Jacob. You know, he was constantly striving for more, uh, tr- striving to get more, striving to trick somebody else, perhaps. And he had these two main goals over the last 20 years. It was 20 years since he fled from his brother Esau, 20 years that he had been in the house of Laban. And we know that for 14, he worked hard for his two wives, Rachel and Leah. Now, he was tricked by his uncle in the midst of that, as we studied a few weeks back. But he had these main goals in his life. One was to marry Rachel, and the other was to get rich, right? That's who he was. He was about getting what he wanted and making money off of whatever he could. He succeeded in both things, marrying Rachel, getting rich, but yet he was not satisfied. In fact, he was never satisfied to this point because things, possessions, power, going after what we want will never satisfy. So beginning here with verse one of Genesis chapter 31, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban. And indeed, it was not favorable toward him as before. (coughs) Now, Jacob hears this report. He hears the rumors spreading amongst the sons of Laban. Uh, the influence of the word on the street about Jacob is that he has taken all this wealth and riches from Laban. And, and so now the, the reality is he hasn't actually physically stolen anything. But he's taking in more wealth at this point than Laban was. And so therefore, that brought on envy, right? You have Laban, who is the guy. He is the big man on campus, so to speak. And Jacob shows up. Now, after 20 years, Jacob is kind of rising in the ranks, rising in influence, power, authority. Laban had a lot of influence. We studied in chapter 29. Laban had tons of influence in the area, 
Everybody knew Laban. But now here's Jacob. And now everybody knows Jacob. And now, in fact, Jacob's wealth and, and his success, so to speak, is, being, is becoming greater than that of Laban. And so the sons of Laban are fueled by envy. Um, and they're, they're fueled by envy of, over the success of Laban, and, or of Jacob, sorry. And that envy, guys, that will distort the truth, right? It makes enemies and it distorts the truth. That's what happens. When we have envy, you make enemies and you distort the truth. Because when you have envy, you're seeing everything through a certain colored lens, right? Everything is jaded by your envy. Somebody else has what you want. Somebody else has greater things or possessions or something that you want. And what do you do? You live for what they have. And then you become, as you become envious and jealous of what they have and jealous of their power and position and influence, then you look at that person and do you have love for them? No. You're angry at them. Why are you angry at them? Because of the envy in your heart. Simply because they're blessed. Simply because they have more than you. And so the reality is this, this envy is, is becoming a, a serious problem. And, and you, you see things through a certain lens. As envy distorts the truth. Uh, Lab, the other issue here, Laban's countenance was, and really, uh, as he says it, his, his countenance uh, was not favorable toward him. This simply means he doesn't like him. That's it. Laban doesn't like Jacob. His countenance was not favorable. And the reality was that he was poisoned against Jacob because of his own heart. His own envy had poisoned his view of Jacob. Envy is so dangerous, guys. So disgusting. You know, it causes us, like I said, to see through a tainted lens. It's all a certain color. We see everything in our way. And that is the wisdom of this world. James chapter three says that that wisdom of this world is full of bitter envy and self-seeking. So you wanna know what the problem is in the world? It's full of the, it's full of the wisdom of this world and everybody's envious of each other. And envy creates more enemies and it creates more division. James goes on to say further in that same passage, and confusion and every evil thing are there. This is all the presence of envy. This is the presence of the wisdom of this world. And I'll be honest with you, unfortunately we see it in the church. We see it all around the church. We maybe see it between from one church to another. And maybe pastors see each other and look at somebody else's ministry as a success. And what do they do? Somebody's like, oh, yeah, you know, I've been going over to that church. Oh, that's a bad church. Don't go there. <laughs> why? Well, uh, why? And the reality, and I'm not saying this is all the time, but sometimes the case is, well, there's, that's a successful ministry. Maybe there's a lot of people going there and I don't, want to, I don't want people to go there. Why? Because of envy, because that's a heart issue. Rather than building God's kingdom, 
And so there's, we see that within kind of a collective body of Christ, but we see it among people. Everybody looking at each other and what they have or what they do or what they get, the benefits that somebody else would get, and we think, that's no fair. Fairness is not a reality in the body of Christ. But that is the wisdom of this world, and envy is so serious. You know, when, we, when we're full of envy, we're opening the door to all sorts of wickedness, all sorts of evil. And we may not give it much thought, but it is extremely serious. Envy, Matthew's gospel tells us that it was out of envy that they put Jesus on the cross, the chief priests and the Pharisees. It was out of envy. And you know what happens, guys? Envy divides and it harms the body of Christ. Jesus died, and right before he died, he prayed that we would be one. Yet when we're full of envy, we're, we're doing the opposite of oneness. We're dividing. So it creates enemies. That's what we're seeing take place here. This, this envy in Laban's heart and his family is creating an enemy of Jacob. And yes, they have a history. <laughs> no doubt they have a history. Verse three, we continue. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. God calls Jacob out of this toxic situation to return to the land of his father. Now, let's remember one important thing about the land of his father. Who's there? Esau, his brother, who hates him, right? Who, who does not wanna see him by any means, and we're gonna get into that in the, the coming next couple chapters. But God calls him back to go and to face down his brother. But you know, that's not even the focus here, is it? The focus is this, the calling that God has. God gives him a word. He calls him out of this toxic situation. He calls him to leave this worldliness behind, to leave the lifestyle behind of lies and manipulation that he's been so caught up in with his uncle for 20 years. And you think, man, I've messed up my life for so long. It's too late, 20 years. He just went at it with his uncle. Before that, he was still a, a conniver. God calls him to return to the land of his, of his father, where Esau is, but you know what? It's home. And as it says here, or as we look at this, this text, and, and thinking back even, it was a place of home, it was a place that he desired. Chapter 30, verse 25, tells us that he longed for it. He desired to be in that place that was home for him. And the situation here was that he was miserable. It was toxic, right? The circumstance that he was in would dictate some direction. Now further, here in this verse three, he gets a clear call, a clear direction from God. And then most importantly, he gets confirmation from God. 
God says, I will be with you. These are some essential pieces to experiencing and knowing the call of God, right? One, there's a desire, right? We have a desire. You want to do something? Sometimes we're like, I don't know what to do with my life. What's God's calling on my life? What what do you want to do? It's okay to have a desire. The Psalms tell us if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our hearts. So if you're walking with Jesus, your desires will be in line with what his desires are and what pleases him. So what is your desire? And as you have a desire, do you, do, does your circumstance dictate or influence the direction as well? Then further, is there clear direction? Is the Lord speaking to you? And then most importantly, is God confirming And God will confirm through his word. God will confirm through godly counsel. But this is how we can hear. We can know, okay, this is what I need to do. And this is all lined up for Jacob here. He's got the desire to go home, even though his brother Esau is there. He's got the circumstances that are chasing him out. He's got this direction from the Lord, and he's got confirmation from the Lord. And that word of confirmation is, I will be with you. What an empowering word from the Lord. In fact, this is the same word that the Lord gave him at Bethel when he first had his encounter with the Lord. And when he had this encounter with the Lord, the Lord said, I will be with you. Now, he forgot that for some time. But here the Lord reminds him, I will be with you. That's great confirmation. That's the greatest confirmation that the Lord would give us. I'll be with you. Verse four, so, that, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock and said to them, I see your father's countenance that it is not favorable toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might, I have served your father, yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So here we see Jacob. He calls a bit of a family meeting, but only a partial family meeting. His children were not part of the equation yet to have a voice in this conversation. And he certainly didn't want his uncle Laban having part of this conversation or anybody who might report back to Laban. So he and his two wives, uh, he gathers them in secret, out in the flock, not in a house, not, not even, not somewhere, you know, maybe a maidservant would overhear and then it would be reported to somebody else. And then the word gets around where they go out to the flock in secret, devising a secret plan And that is certainly not the first time that Jacob has been a part of devising a secret plan. But his plan is to get out. To get out, to out-trick his uncle for the last time. Because Jacob had been tricked enough. There were two problems here that Jacob presented to his wives. One was Laban's countenance. That he he didn't like Jacob, as we talked about before, 
and he didn't respect Jacob. And this, there's no response from Rachel and Leah to say, no, no, come on, that's our dad. They knew their dad. He's like, yeah, your dad doesn't like me. And they're like, yeah, he doesn't like you. <laughs> your dad doesn't respect me. Yeah, he doesn't respect you. And so the problem was his countenance and the problem was his dishonesty, as Jacob says. And again, no surprise to Rachel and Leah. They're like, yeah, he's a dishonest guy. But interesting that Jacob will, is so quick to point out the dishonesty of his uncle Laban. But yet he doesn't see the dishonesty that he's been living in, the lies and manipulation that he's been living in for, for his whole life. So quick to point it out. And aren't we so similar? We could see somebody else, we could see the sin in somebody else's life. We're like, ha ha, look at what they're doing. I can't believe it. But yet we've got the plank swinging around. You know, we're knocking people over with a tree trunk or something. <clears throat> but he says that, but the Lord has been with me. This is the good news. In the midst of all of it, through all of the deceit through being used and abused by his uncle Laban, the Lord has been with him. Through all that mistreatment, great confidence comes when the Lord is with him. God's favor is greater than man's favor. And that's what he gives this picture of, man, when when God moves, the Lord has been with me and, and the Lord shows up and, and everything that, you, if your uncle said, this is my wages, then somehow the blessing would come and that's in that area. So there you go. There's my wages, the speckled and then the striped. And the idea being, you know, that this is of the cattle and, and he goes on to then give an explanation that this was actually from the Lord, verse 10. And it happened at that time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leapt upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me, now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. <coughs> God's favor is greater than man's favor and here's the picture of what God does. It is prosperity. And God gave, through a dream, he gave a vision to Jacob. And so in reality, when, when Laban would say that the speckled, cattle or the streaked cattle is your wages, then God gave him a vision. This is how you're going to get the speckled cattle. This is how you're going to get the streaked cattle. It's through the mating of the animals, ultimately. And God is giving him the vision of how to actually mate the animals to get the greatest benefit. The Lord provided this is prosperity that is from God. Jacob is finally in a place of giving credit where credit is due. 
Now, he, I'm sure he was educating himself on cattle. That was his job. But he said, no, the Lord gave me a vision. The Lord showed Jacob how to do this work for the greatest success that brought great gain. But the Lord did the work, and Jacob recognized it. And so then, further, he gets into the calling. And this is further confirmation of the calling. I am the God of Bethel. The place, that place. Remember the place, Jacob? Of course he remembers the place. This is the place that he had a real personal encounter with the Lord. A real spiritual encounter with the Lord. And he's saying, go back to the place where you made the vow. Go back to the place where you encountered the Lord personally and spiritually. Remember where you've been and remember what the Lord has done. Remember the promise of God. Remember the vow that you made with the Lord. Remember the vow that the Lord made with you. I will be with you. Go back to where we encounter the Lord. And let that be a reminder to us, going back to our encounter with Jesus. We allow a lot of things to get in the way. And, and maybe it's circumstances of life, but we'll let the circumstances of life be an excuse for us. Well, it's okay because my life's really hard, and so I'm gonna indulge in this sin. I'm gonna indulge in just a little manipulation, just a little, little white lie to outsmart the Uncle Labans of the world. But the Lord is calling him back to that personal encounter, back to his first love. And when we go back to that place, guys, we're reminded of his goodness and grace. We're, remind us of, we're reminded of how he shows up. And that doesn't mean we hold on to a, an emotional experience, but the Lord wants to remind us and the Lord wants to bring us back to the simplicity of just that personal relationship with him, that personal encounter and time with him in the stillness. Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion of our, uh, or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Now, Rachel and Leah, we studied this a couple chapters ago. They didn't really get along, especially when it came to being sister wives, okay? As you would imagine, they wouldn't get along in that scenario, uh, as would be the case with anybody, of course. But in the, they, they didn't get along much. They would not have often agreed on things. We know that there was this struggle between them because Leah had been so fruitful and Rachel was barren and, and there's just all of this struggle that's going on and, and yet they agree with each other here and they support Jacob. And, and really in their support of Jacob is also a rejection of their father's lifestyle and his sinful ways and what he's done. He has squandered everything. 
That's, that's what they're saying here. Look, he, everything that is supposed to be our inheritance, there's nothing left. He's taken it all for himself. He's squandered it all. It's all about Laban. And so then, in their agreement and in their support, they, they say, do what God says. This is an empowering statement. Now, I have one wife, and I'm thankful that I only have one wife. When my wife says, do what God says, that is extremely empowering. Now, he has two wives who say, do what God says, so amen to that, right? There's a, there's great, a multitude of counsel here, but, the, but that word, to do what God says, this is empowering for a marriage, husband and wife, for a husband to hear this from his wife and for a wife to know that her husband is hearing from God. That brings that mutual glorious submission that we read about in the scriptures when it comes down to marriage. I remember years ago when we were living in uh, the Bahamas in the mission field and it was coming this time of change, this transitional time of should we continue with the ministry in which there was so many things changing and, and happening and, and we were having our second kid in less than a year and a lot of things were happening. The Lord had given us this call to come back to New Jersey, but we thought it was, you know, we'll wait, we'll wait. And I remember like sitting, praying, talking with my wife and really just being, what do we do, Lord? And she said to me, at one point, she's like, look, I know you're seeking the Lord. And I know you'll hear from the Lord. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what to do. But just do what God says. And I'm with you. And I went and I was like, oh, yeah. I felt like I was a, a soldier going into battle that day out of the house. Like, yes. I could take on the world because my wife has given me the seal of approval to make a decision for our life. And she's saying, I trust you because I trust that you're gonna hear from the Lord. Now, if I'm just going and making ridiculous decisions and, and then even trying to claim, oh no, it's a godly decision. She's like, yeah, I don't know if you're hearing from the Lord. I don't know about that one, right? That's when we have struggle. That's when we have trials in marriage. But when she's, I know you're gonna hear from the Lord because I know you're seeking the Lord. It's extremely empowering not just to me, but to our marriage. Verse 17, then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all, the, all his livestock and all his possessions, <coughs> which he had gained. His acquired livestock, which he had gained in Paddan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the household idols <coughs> that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose, he arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains, mountains of Gilead. Really what's happening here, he's just trying to get out. 
And he's trying to get out fast, to make haste, to leave quickly. The word that we see there that he stole away, meaning that he snuck away or he slipped away. He didn't want Laban to find out. He wanted to get out and he wanted to get out on his terms. Yes, he was obeying God, but he was still taking certain matters into his own hands. And you know what? Really, it comes down to fear. Fear that, you know what, maybe it's going to be another 20 years that Uncle Laban's going to try to hold me captive. Or maybe it's going to be another 20 days, even. Or maybe he's just going to get really mad at me, and I don't like confrontation. Or maybe it's going to go really bad. Maybe he's going to be really angry. Maybe he's going to keep my family here and just say, you go, but these are mine. And there's all the different scenarios that you could come up with in your mind and think, well, but this is going to be bad, or this is going to be bad, or this is going to be bad. And we lack integrity because we make all the excuses and justifications, thinking, no, 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 I'm afraid. Fear prohibits us from fully trusting God, fully trusting his promise and receiving the blessings Fear keeps us holding on to certain things, even in the midst of even in the midst of our calling that he's called us to. And so we see then, of course, Rachel then, as as Jacob steals away the family, sneaks the family away, Rachel steals these idols. And there's why exactly we don't know. Maybe so, you know, Laban would not use these idols against them in trying to, you know, conjure up some sort of divine power from the gods that he worships, his idol worship. Uh, He's done it before. Maybe she's concerned he'll do it again. Uh, Maybe it was for the potential profit from their value to think eventually this is her inheritance. She could sell it. She could get something out of it. Or maybe it was just out of spite because she was mad at her father, or maybe it was to protect her father, keep him from idolatry that she had seen going on for so many years. But nonetheless, she steals these idols, takes them with her, and we'll see those turn up a little bit later. And (coughs) they headed toward Gilead in this preparation to go see Esau, ultimately. Go home to where God had called them. Verse 22, and Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So Jacob, or Laban pursues and catches Jacob. Interesting that he doesn't find out for three days. That tells you how out of touch with his own family he is. Three days, he doesn't even know that his his daughters, his grandkids, Jacob, who had run his cattle, they're all gone. For three days, they've been gone. Nonetheless, he pursues seven days. He catches up. He catches Jacob. But God shows that he's still in control as he shows up in a dream to Laban, and in that is even protecting Jacob, and being this word from the Lord, 
Laban's not exactly certain how to handle it, but they come, they encounter each other now, verse 25. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why do you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me for I might have sent you away with joy and songs with timbrel and harp and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. He, he, he's got this whole scenario that he's presenting here. Why did you run? First of all, why did you run? He's playing a game here with Jacob. Why did you run? I could have thrown you a farewell party. I'm a good guy. No, you're not. Let's be real. You're not a good guy, but he's trying to paint this picture. What? Jacob. You, I mean, we could have had a party. Why did you not let me kiss my, my daughters and, and my family and send everybody off with a big party and a timbrel and a harp? We would have sang songs together. It could have been a glorious thing. And I would imagine if I'm Jacob, I'm thinking, really? A glorious thing? 20 years and it's not been one glorious thing. There was obviously a lot of history that brought Jacob to that place. And, but yet, God shows up. God shows up in this dream to Laban and, and he says it. Look, it is in my power. And the reality is, no, it's not. It's not in your power at all. And, it, and right when men would say, it is in my power, is when God would show up and say, absolutely not. You are powerless. And God shows that time and time again. Even if it looks like the powers of this world are in control, God is in control. And although everybody, the powers of this world may, may look like they have authority over everything, God has the authority. And as he is in control, things happen according to his way and his will and what he allows. And so Jake, or Laban's saying, it is in my power. And then he even says it himself, but the God of your father spoke to me. Verse 30 then, and now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols but put, and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all over the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Now, 
Rachel has learned a thing or two from her father on deception. And she actually stole these idols. And, and now, so Laban is saying, look, okay, so you stole away my family. You snuck away with my daughters. But why did you steal my gods? That statement in itself is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Why did you steal my gods? What are you talking about? Your gods? What, you put them in your pocket? What kind of god is this? And the reality is that this is a greater problem to him than actually his own family. The fact that his idols were taken, his gods were taken. He, he was all about idol worship. That's who Laban was. This representation here of idol worship, it, it's a serious thing. And we get caught up in this, don't we? It's a serious problem to think that your gods could be stolen and packed up in a saddlebag and somebody sitting on them. But man, such emptiness within idol worship. When, when Jacob takes away his family and takes away his influence even and this wealth that is already, we already talked about, but yet the issue that he's gonna dig into and go searching for is his idols, his gods. Rachel, as she learned well from her father and perhaps from her husband how to deceive, she's stolen them, she's hiding them, and then she uses women problems to hide them even further. As, they, as her dad comes in looking all over in the tent and she's like, I can't get up, dad. I've got lady problems. So, whoa, I don't want to know about it. And, and he's it's, it's totally avoiding it. That's what's happening here. It's exactly the picture. I don't want to deal with that. And so now he can't find them. He searched. He did not find the household idols. Verse 36, though, then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may be judged between us both. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus, I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you have changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob finally snapped. I mean, he just, that's it. He, he goes on a rant here for these six verses, right? He just goes on this rant 
20 years of pent up frustration is all coming out. Laban shows up, giving him a hard time. Laban's given him a hard time for 20 years. Laban is searching his tent, searching his wife's tent, disturbing everything. And now Jacob had enough. He snapped. And in this, he's defending himself. You found nothing. And on top of that, you came here searching. You found nothing. On top of that, I served you faithfully. I worked hard. I demonstrated integrity. I replenished the herd that was torn away by wolves from my own herd, from my own flock. I sacrificed my own success for your success. He goes through all this long list of things. And that's all what he's saying. Look, I've given everything to you. 14 years for your two daughters, six more years for flock. And you show up and you're trying to find some little idols. You're trying to find something that I've taken from you, but I've worked for everything. He defends himself and then he rebukes Laban. He says, you come after me, you accuse me and... You changed my wages 10 times over. Isn't that what the world does? When you desire, when you seek after it, when you're longing to get a little bit more, what did I say in the beginning? He was after these things. Rachel, his wife, one of his wives, and riches, And yet those things did not quite satisfy, so he kept going. And you know what? He gave 20 years so he could get a little bit more. Because he got Leah. That's not what he wanted. He wanted Rachel. Seven more years. He got Rachel. That's not quite enough. Six more years for the flocks. And that's what the world does. It it gets its hooks in you. And when you think, oh no, this time's gonna be different. If I put the effort in, then I'm gonna get out of it what I've been looking for. But the wages keep changing. 10 times over, the wages just keep changing. The circumstances keep getting worse. So what is he doing? He's defending himself. He's rebuking Laban. And get this picture here. Laban is a representation of the world and the desires of the world. And so now he's standing his ground. Finally, after 20 years, he lost it. He's had enough. He's defending himself against Laban. He's rebuking Laban to say, no, you've done enough. You've changed everything on me. You have lied and deceived enough. And then what does he do? Verse 42, unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely you would have had, you have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you. He glorifies God. This is the major shift in who he is. Standing against the way of the world, standing against the way of his past and his world of lies and manipulations and saying, no, no, not gonna put up with it. 
rebuking Laban and then glorifying God. God protected, God saw him, God provided, and God sustained. Yet, interesting that he says, the God of my father and the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, he has not yet for himself claimed a personal relationship with God. That fear of God is not his own. Verse 43, and Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters and these children are my children and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine, but what can I do this day to these, my daughters, or to their children whom they have born? Now therefore come, let us make covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Also Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. We see a covenant take place. And Laban doesn't respond to Jacob's rant more other than just coming at him and puffing out his own chest. It's, it's, you know, it's like neighbors fighting over a property line, so to speak, as it's getting started here. They're getting all fired up. Jacob has totally lost it. Laban's now coming. As Jacob said, what have I taken that's yours? And Laban says, it's all mine. That's what he's saying. It's all mine. My daughters, the flocks, it's all mine. Although Jacob has just clearly outlined for him, well, I worked for all that. And I worked hard for all that. But then he, further he say, okay, so let's figure out how do we move forward? Interesting that he's not answering for 20 years of wrongdoing and manipulation. Just trying to cover over it without any confession, without any repentance or ownership of any problem. So, okay, let's make a covenant. That's the only way this is gonna work. And in this, in this covenant, we see the heap of witness, right? We see there's a, there's a wall, in a sense, that has been built up, a separation. Pillars that have been built up, and, and they have a representation. And, the, and the, this heap of witness and the, the mitzvah, it's not a nice sentiment here. It's a proclamation, ultimately, between them saying, I don't trust you. And God is watching. And now, Laban has never before claimed anything of God other than your God showed up to me in a dream and then now is saying, your God is watching you. The world will do that to us, right? They have no knowledge or understanding of who God is. But then they'll be like, your God is watching you. Okay, <laughs> thanks. To, to try to hold us to some form of accountability. But here the reality, and, and we'll continue to read and, and kind of bring it all together in what this covenant looks like. 
Then Laban said to Jacob, here is the heap and here is the pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judged between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. This covenant with the pillar, with the heap, with the, the stone that have been laid out, the wall of separation and this pillar, this is a representation of separation, of parting ways, and that was necessary at this point. And unfortunately, sometimes it is necessary. How can two walk together unless they are agreed, right? Amos chapter three says that. But this, was, this represented two different things for Laban and for Jacob. For Laban, this was an oath. An oath to say, I won't harm you, you won't harm me. But more importantly, it was a guarantee for the future of his daughters and his grandchildren. Bringing more attention to the fact that he doesn't trust Jacob. Jacob has given him no reason to believe that he would bring any harm to his daughters or, the, or his grandchildren. But yet here's Laban saying, I don't trust you. And so I'm gonna make a covenant. And this covenant is that you won't harm me, I won't harm you, and you will not harm my family, my daughters, my grandchildren. And that's what this was. For Laban, it was a representation of this oath. But for Jacob, what does he do? Verse 54, he made an offering, a sacrifice. And that offering and that sacrifice was is to close the chapter on the past, on the ways of the world that he had been so caught up in. This offering was that he might press on toward the calling that God had given him. And so then Laban departed. And this is the last we hear of Laban. The last they encounter Laban. He says goodbye, knowing that he's saying goodbye. Unfortunately, that's, I mean, it's a sad thing, but sometimes that's what happens. When there's, when there's worldliness, when there's great sin involved, and there's a point in life that we need to say, no, I gotta cut that off. I gotta be rid of it. And I'm gonna even put up, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put up a sacrifice here. I'm gonna make an offering here to close the door, to close the, the chapter of the past and to be separated from it, not going back to those ways. If Jacob went back to Laban, he could have easily been caught up again in all of the manipulation and playing that game that the world plays, playing that game that Uncle Laban plays. Laban is that representation of the world, the lusts of the flesh, full of lies 
and manipulation that we just long after. And that just leads us on and changes our wages 10 times over. Jacob needed to leave the cares and desires of the world behind and press on toward God's calling on his life. And we likewise need to forsake the cares of this world and press on. Closing with this verse, I'm reminded of Philippians chapter three, verse 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the perspective of Paul. That's the perspective of relationship with Jesus is pressing on, putting to death the things of the flesh, the old man, and putting on the new man, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where Jacob's at. This massive turning point in his life of leaving these 20 years behind and leaving the ways of those 20 years, the lifestyle that he lived in for 20 years, leaving it behind, closing the chapter and pressing on to what God has called him to, which was to go to the place. That's all we know right now. We're gonna get more into that in the next couple chapters and going to this place and where Jacob ultimately will even wrestle with God. He's not done yet. He's got some more turning points to go, but this was one. This was the beginning here for him of turning things around as he presses into the Lord. Let's pray.